what Kenzie just said is, is so true. And the reality is that if you're a Christian and you have understood the wondrous love of Christ and it has truly gripped you and transformed you, you have a goal to live like Jesus, to honor him, to bring glory to his name, to emulate his life. Um, but the reality is, the truth is, the sad truth is that we, is that we all sin. Uh, none of us measure up. None of us come even close to measuring up to the standard that we have in Christ. And I want to tell you from personal experience, this is discouraging. It's, it's hard. It's hard to have a goal motivated by love, uh, love divine that, that, ex that I experienced in Christ that now resonates in my heart. I love him because he first loved me. I've got a passion to be like Jesus, and I'm not. And that's the, that's the challenge. We still struggle with sin, don't we? We constantly wrestle with three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it can be disheartening, it can be discouraging, it can just take away uh, the joy in our Christian life because we set ourselves a goal to be like Jesus and then we look at ourselves in the mirror at the end of the day and we think, man, I just blew it. I failed. Paul talks about this struggle in Galatians 5.17. This is how it reads in the NASB. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Folks, we're in a war. There is a battle going on in all of our lives. For those of us who love Jesus, for those of us who genuinely desire to be like him, we are in a war. And sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. Sometimes we experience victory and sometimes we experience defeat. And we'll never know victory. We'll never know absolute, total, complete victory until we are freed from this fallen physical body that Paul calls in Romans chapter 7, this body of death. Our flesh, the body in which we live, is fallen. When you became a Christian, you were redeemed. Your body is still fallen. It is a fallen body. And it's wired to sin. So our flesh is instinctively inclined to gratify the desires of the flesh. Your flesh is instinctively wired to gratify the desires of the flesh. And that creates this, this conflict that can be, as I've said, so disheartening and so discouraging. And at the end of the passage that we're going to read in a second, the Apostle Paul says this. Therefore, my brothers and my sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, or in this way, stand firm in the Lord. And so what's, what's going to become obvious is that standing firm as a Christian is not sinlessness. It doesn't equate to constant, ongoing, perpetual victory. Standing firm as a Christian doesn't mean that we don't sin. But sin doesn't mean that we don't stand firm. Doesn't mean that we can't grow and live increasingly victorious, Christ-like 
lives. So standing firm, in my understanding, is this. Taking two steps forward and then one back. And taking two steps forward and one back. And as I do that, something amazing happens. I'm two steps forward. I've, I've transformed. I'm changed. I'm growing into the likeness of Christ and I am standing firm in the, in the Christian walk. Standing firm is progressively seeing the likeness of Jesus formed in my life. So how do I stand firm? That's the question that we want to ask ourselves this morning. How do we stand firm? How do we persevere in the face of sin and temptation and this incessant struggle with the flesh? And this is the issue Paul deals with. And so I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to begin at verse 12. And we're going to go through chapter 4, verse 1. So read along with me if you would, please. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, and the implicit thing here is brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to the lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in, in, in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to, make, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved." Let's pray. Father, it is our desire to live lives that reflect the ethic, the character, the grace, the love, the kindness, the purity of Jesus. And Lord, you, you are intimately acquainted with every single one of us, and you know how far short we fall, how discouraged we can be at times, how difficult it can be at times, how we feel that this sin will never, ever be broken in our lives. But you've called us to stand firm. And Lord, I pray that as we study this passage of Scripture this, this morning, that by your Holy Spirit working in our lives, you would change and transform and shape us to be people who, who just persistently take one, two steps forward, one back, two more forward and one back, so that we can see the transformation that we long to see and you long to see in our lives. So grant that, we pray. Open our minds to understand the scripture now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I've said, in this passage of scripture, Paul identifies four keys to standing firm, four strategies of living the Christian life, of living the Christian life of faithfulness. And the first thing he says is this, never stop pressing on. Let me read for you again from verses 12 through 14. 
Not that I have already obtained this, Paul says, or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, as we begin, it's important to say that this entire passage is filled with allusions, obvious allusions to the Olympics. Now, the Olympic Games had been part of history at this point when Paul wrote for about 700 years. And Paul is making allusions, lots of allusions in this passage of scripture to, to the Olympics, to racing and to struggling and to, the, to sort of physically energizing oneself and, and striving to accomplish goals. Running the race is one of Paul's favorite metaphors and he, and he, and he talks about it here, how he's striving and, 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 and you know, pushing forward to reach that goal. Uh, another time that he uses that is in Timothy. Near the end of his life, he's, he's talking this way. The last letter that he ever wrote to Timothy, he says, the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, Timothy. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. You see, Paul was a man who understood that the Christian life was like running a race, striving towards the finish line. And so what he says is, I press on, and I'm going to read it to you the way the NASB says this thing. He says that he says, I press on, then I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold off by Christ Jesus. So, so that phraseology is a little different than what you read in verse, uh, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I like the way this phrases it. He says, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which also Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. In other words, I strive, I exercise myself, I put myself out there, I don't quit, so that I may accomplish, I may, I may reach that goal, which is the same goal that Jesus laid hold of me to accomplish in me. We press on, therefore, we keep on keeping on to realize that prize of heaven, the eternal reward. I'm gonna have another little granddaughter in about a month, and her mom and dad in a little while are gonna teach her probably six months because my grandkids are just amazing. They'll be walking at that age. So they're gonna teach, my daughter and her husband are gonna teach this little girl how to walk. And I can just picture it now. You know, one of the, one of the parents, maybe, maybe Cam, will be standing there holding her little hands and, and Candace will be sitting in the chair with her hands out like this. And that little girl is gonna strive. She's gonna struggle. She's gonna try to walk. And, and, and her mom and dad will be there to help her on to reach that goal. In my mind, that's the picture that Paul is giving us here in this passage of scripture. The little one struggling to reach the outstretched arms of a mother or father while the other parent helps them and supports them and guides that toddler. And I think that's what Paul is saying the Christian life should be like. We never stop striving. We never throw in the towel. We never quit. We, we're always keeping on, keeping on. 
until that day when we see him face to face and we're transformed into his likeness. And I think this is where standing firm has to start as believers. And there are a lot of things that can prevent us from standing firm. And in this passage of scripture, I think Paul alludes to two of them. Paul alludes to a couple of things that can prevent us from striving, prevent us from pushing on in the Christian journey. And the first one is a, is a pride that breeds a certain complacency in our lives. A pride that breeds a certain complacency. I love how the apostle speaks here. He says in verse one, he says, not that I have already obtained this or am perfect. Verse three, then he says, I don't consider that I've made it my own. Paul understands. He knew that he had not arrived yet. He knew that he still needed to grow. He knew that he had not obtained what he was striving for. And I love this. I find this so encouraging. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, was wrestling with sin. Now, isn't that encouraging? Here's a guy that is encouraging people to stand firm. Sort of the presupposition is this guy's standing firm, but he's wrestling with sin. He is wrestling with sin. He understands that he's not there yet. He understands that God is still working in his life. He understands that he is a work in progress. It is so easy for us sometimes to become complacent. Too often we stop pressing on because we feel that we've arrived. We, we look around at other people in the church and you say, well, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. My marriage is pretty strong. I tithe. I, I, you know, I don't have any really bad habits. I've got my life pretty together. That's pride. That, that's, a, that's the pride that breeds complacency. Too often we think we don't need to grow, but in reality, we never, ever stop growing. So I want to ask you a diagnostic question. I want you to try to answer this quickly. So here's my diagnostic question. Where's God growing you right now? Where's he stretching you? Where's he pushing you out of your comfort zone? If you can't answer that question, it's perhaps possible that you have become complacent. That you say, well, you know what? I have arrived. I have attained it. I'm... I'm not being, not being arrogant, not being boastful, but like I, I haven't committed adultery. I don't use foul language. I follow the speed limits. I'm a good person. My wife is happy. My kids are happy. I'm not materialistic. I've arrived. And I just, I hate to burst your bubble so early in this cold Sunday morning, but you haven't. You haven't. You're not even close if you're like me, these last couple of years in my life, as I thought, as I, so I asked myself the question when I was writing this uh, Thursday and Friday, and I thought about it again last night when I was in bed. Where, how, how is God growing me? Where, where am I being stretched? One of the things that I realized when I, when I stopped being the pastor at Living Hope is just how much pride is in my life. I used to think, yeah, pretty darn humble. Not even close. Came to realize how, how much I long for self-indulgence. 
Now I'm retired. I've said this to you before. Now I'm retired. It's Paul time. It's travel time. It's relaxing time. It's do what you want time. Isn't that what Freedom 55 is all about? Not that I'm 55 anymore, but isn't that, isn't that the plan? And then when I got sick, I've realized how much I wrestled with mortality and faith. Do I honestly believe what I preach? And so, so, I, so there's just three areas of about 150 that I could identify with, I could share with you this morning, where God has been putting his finger down into my life and pushing and changing and shaping and molding, and it's not comfortable, but that's what it means to stand firm. Because I tell you, and I'm going to repeat this later on, if you're not growing, if you're not moving forward, you can't stay stagnant in the Christian journey. You're going backwards. If you're not growing, you're backsliding. Those are the two choices you have. So if, that, if there is a pride that's bred a complacency in your life where you said, yeah, I'm pretty good, I got it all together, I don't really need to grow that much, I challenge you because you're lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself. But secondly, in verse, um, secondly then, what, what Paul says is this, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. And so in some senses, pressing on is, is also connected to forgetting. To what I call gospel forgetfulness. Paul says, I press on, I press on, strain on to what's ahead because I've forgotten what lies behind. Pressing on is predicated, therefore, on forgetting past failures, forgetting past sins. I think pressing on is, is predicated, excuse me, in Paul's life, where he just simply said, I am not going to let my past define me. Like, if there's, if there's anybody who should have been tripped up by his past, it was the Apostle Paul. Like, the guy was a murderer. Like, you, you think of the most fanatical, cruel ISIS terrorist? That's, that's the Apostle Paul before he met Christ. Like, he was there celebrating Stephen's martyrdom. Stephen is having his brains bashed out with big rocks. Paul's cheering them on. And he says, you know what, I've got, if I'm going to live this Christian life, I'm, I'm going to press on and see the, see the likeness of Christ established in me. If I'm going to be this man taking two steps forward, one back, two steps forward, one back, if I'm going to see that reality in my life, I've got to forget about it. I've got to be able to put it in the past and bury it there. And this isn't some psychological trick he's talking about. This is simply believing the gospel. Believing that God took Paul's sins and buried them in the depths of the sea through what Christ did on the cross. Pressing on is rooted in gospel forgetfulness. I, you know, I don't know what your past is like. I don't know the sins that haunt you. I don't know the failure that happened yesterday that causes you just to want to throw your hands up in there and say, I can't deal with it. I will never be free of this sin. I cannot control. I gossip. I lust. I am just fundamentally selfish. 
I have a bad temper and it just explodes with at least. I don't know what happened yesterday, but I got to tell you that if you want to see Christ's likeness shaped and, and formed and transforming you, you've got to forget it. You've got to put it in the past. It can't define you. It is not who you are. The Bible says that Jesus took that old man and he strapped it to himself and he took it to the cross, Romans 6, and that old man died there. That you need no longer be enslaved to him. But if that's who you are, if that's how you define yourself, if that's how you see yourself, it's, it's like a weight you're dragging. It's like a ball and chain. The gospel tells us to forget our sins. They're buried in the depths of the sea. God remembers them no more. Why do you? One of the greatest hindrances to Christians becoming like Christ is the guilt that we pile on ourselves is the burden that we carry, a self-inflicted wound that causes us to limp through life rather than sprint. And again, I don't know the circumstances of your particular life, but I can tell you what the Apostle Paul was like. He was a man that he, who knew he hadn't arrived and he struggled with sin. And he says, you know what, I'm going to forget it. Because of the cross, because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of the promises of God relative to the cross, I am going to press on. Yesterday is yesterday. That's old news. As a Christian, I wake up every single day with a clean slate, and by the grace of God, I am going to be different today. And maybe you're not. Forget about it and press on. Secondly, in verses 15 and 16, Paul talks about being deferential to your conscience. Now, I've got to admit, I struggled a little bit with this verse this week, and I'm going to read it to you. I'll read from verse 14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Then he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let those who are mature think this way. Well, what way? I think the answer to that is that we forget the past, we recognize that we're sinners, we forget the past, and we press on. But then in verse 15, he says something that seems at first blush to be a little confusing. Second half, and if, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. It's almost like he's saying, but if you want to think differently or live differently or hold to a different moral code, that's okay. It's almost like he's saying, if you want to quit striving and just sort of throw in the towel, go ahead. But clearly that's not what he's saying. It can't be what he's saying. So what is he saying? Let me try to explain this. I think, and again, this is, you know, my thoughts, and I may not be right here, but I think what he's saying is this. 
Paul understands that there are certain people in the Philippian church who are having a really hard time forgetting, forgetting certain aspects of their pre-Christian lives, their pre-Christian culture. They can't forget or they're struggling to forget their past. And they have certain religious sensitivities that are very raw, they're very real for them. So for instance, we know this from the New Testament, some Jews felt the need to follow certain religious Jewish laws, certain religious, celebrate certain religious days. They were, they were born that way, they had been raised in that culture, and they just felt compelled to do that. Some Gentiles were deeply troubled about eating meat that had been sacrificed in an idol's temple. They'd been going to these temples and they had seen the sacrifices and they just couldn't bring themselves to eat that meat. They had a sensitivity. They couldn't forget it because of that cultural religious sensitivity. So I think that what Paul is doing here is he's speaking about those cultural differences that mark the Jews and the Gentiles in the Philippian church. And I believe that he's speaking about issues of conscience, not issues of morality. Does that make sense? Paul deals with this in Romans 14. And so I want to read for you the first five verses of the book of Romans because he's dealing with this issue. Just let me read it for you to kind of give you a, a flavor of what he says. As for the one who was weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over his opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while a weak person eats only vegetables. That's the person who eat, won't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master, God, that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. His point in this passage of scripture is this, that we must allow our conscience to be our guide. And we must allow God to sanctify his children when, when we are not dealing with issues of morality, biblically defined morality, sin and righteousness, there are gray areas in the Christian life where we just have to entrust that person to God. That, that God will shepherd them and will lead them into a deeper Christian walk. And again, it's critical to note that we are not talking about issues that are explicitly sinful. So I want to give you an illustration from my life where I am the weaker brother, okay? I don't like tattoos. <laughs> Personally, I don't think Christians should get tattoos. And I have all kinds of really good arguments as to why that's the case. I, I, and I can, I can sort of, I could stand up here and tell you 10 reasons to Sunday why I think getting a tattoo is bad, right? Not at least it, it causes pain unnecessarily. Why do you want to do that to yourself? 
But none of my arguments are conclusively biblical. None of them. All I know is that for me to get a tattoo would be wrong. It, it, my conscience wouldn't allow me to do I just feel that it's wrong for me to do that. So, a couple, three years ago, when we started looking to hire a young man to lead Living Hope Church, I had a guy in mind. And I knew that he had a tattoo. What do you do? So I wrestled with this. Is it sinful to have a tattoo? No. Is he wrong to do it, explicitly wrong to do it? No. Does his conscience allow him the freedom to do it? Obviously. Is he able to do in good conscience what I could not do in good conscience? Yes. So therefore, God's plan for him and God's plan for me are different. And that's okay. I think what Paul is getting at in this passage of scripture in Philippians is, is that we've got to be sensitive to our unique conscience. My history isn't yours. Steve's history isn't mine. To his master, he will stand or fall, and stand he will because God is able to make him stand. A Christian is someone, someone who is going to stand firm is someone who is going to be sensitive to his or her conscience. It's incredibly wrong to violate your conscience, therefore. And it's also wrong to argue with those who have personal convictions that don't align with yours. And that's why Paul begins Romans 14. He says, don't argue about his opinion or her opinion because they are issues of opinion. One of the great things about the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ, is of, of which we are, the temple of God, is that we are called to unity, not uniformity. Not uniformity. And we must leave room for others to freely express how God leads their conscience. I gotta be honest, I wish everyone thought like me. <laughs> but they don't. And so we gotta leave freedom. But here's the important, that, that, that was sort of a, an introduction to this thought, but here's the important point that I wanna make. If our conscience says that is particular, that thing is that particular thing is wrong for you to do, and you do that thing, even though you may not be sinning explicitly, you're still sinning. You're still sinning. And we are in danger when we get to that place of not standing firm. And, and so what I want to do for you is just finish up Romans 14, but I want to read it from the New Living Translation. I want to read the last verses where Paul summarizes his argument from Romans 14 where he's talking about issues of conscience, and I want you to hear what he says. It's better not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you are doing, but keep it to yourself. Keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. But if you have doubts, 
about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you're not following your convictions. You're not following your conscience. If you do anything you believe that is not right, you're sinning. So for me to get a tattoo, even if it was a, a cross that says, Jesus saves, right? So I can evangelize at the beach. <laughs> right? e even if I did that, it would be a sin for me. But it may not be a sin for somebody else. The problem is, if I did that, I think it's going to begin a process of desensitizing my conscience, creating a callousness in my heart, deadening my conscience, and as a consequence, make real sin more palatable and acceptable to me than otherwise would have been the case. So this is a small point, and I think it sort of easily missed in this passage of Scripture. But all of our histories are very different. All of our histories are very different. We, it just came to my mind just now, but we had a, a young woman, a Christian lady, come from um, the Philippines to look after my mother-in-law, who had Alzheimer's really, really bad, before we had to put her into a home. Elaine is a lovely, godly Christian woman. So we took her to the cottage that summer, and all of my daughters and people there are swimming in bikinis. And she is absolutely convinced that if you're a Christian, you cannot wear a bikini. Her culture has brought her to that place, that, that conviction that that is wrong. And for her, you know what it is? It's wrong. It's wrong. And so we have to be sensitive we have to be gracious. Am I a weaker brother when it comes to the tattoo? Absolutely, I am. I recognize that. So we need to be gracious and kind and merciful to one another. Thirdly, and very quickly, follow a godly mentor. Find and follow a godly mentor. In verse 17, Paul offers himself and his team, actually, as, as mentors to follow. He did it all the time. Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, I urge you then to be imitators of me. Chapter 11, follow me as I follow Christ. Peter says the same thing about the elders in, in, uh, in 1 Peter 5. It's critical that we have mentors. Critical that we have flesh and blood examples that we can look at and watch their lives. It's, a, it's, a, it's an important thing. As a matter of fact, this... This, is it this Monday we're, we're beginning a mentoring thing with a young couple in our church? So they're doing marriage mentoring. And so they're coming to us for marriage. May God have mercy on their soul. But anyways, we're going <laughs> to try to mentor them in terms of how to be married for 40 years and, and be happily married for 40 years. And that's an important thing. It's a critical thing to have somebody who's just a little further down on the journey that you can look at, that you can talk to, you can ask questions of, and you can get advice and direction and accountability. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example of Paul, he says. And then he goes on to speak about people that we shouldn't allow to be our mentors. And this is where I want to sort of focus for a second. We can assume that Paul is speaking about those false teachers that we referenced in the last 
passage. So let me read this passage for you. Brothers, join in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. And then he talks about bad mentors. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly or their appetite. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So these people were setting themselves up as mentors, these false teachers who had got the gospel about 95% right were setting themselves up as false teachers. And Paul describes them. They are enemies of the cross. They are denying the gospel of Christ. Their God is their appetite. They're indulging the flesh. They glory in what is shameful. They don't know how to blush, essentially. They flaunt their sin. And their minds are set on earthly things, focused on the pleasures of this life. And they were being successful. They were being successful. These guys who were enemies of the cross, indulging the flesh, their their God is their belly. They didn't have any shame in their sin and they're focused on earthly things. They were getting a following in the church. That's why Paul had to write Galatians. That's why he had to write the first part of Philippians chapter 3. These people were getting a foothold. They were getting traction in the church. And that's a scary thing, isn't it? When you would say to yourself, if you describe someone as an enemy of the cross, whose God is their belly, who glory in their shame, and are focused on this world rather than the next, how in the world do they become models in the church? How how in the world do they get a following in the body of Christ? What they were saying was so alluring and so enticing. A little compromise, a little tolerance, a little open-mindedness. And you have a message that vulnerable Christians eat up. Eat up. And it's true today. We have false teachers all across evangelicalism who deny the cross. False teachers who will say that God didn't vent his wrath on on Christ. That's cosmic child abuse. That's just wrong. Penal substitutionary atonement is not the heart of the gospel. Well, yes, it is. They'll deny it. It's all about love. It's all about inclusiveness and tolerance and, and mercy and forgiveness. And then it's easy for that to slide into universalism. People who don't even know Jesus were included in the work of Christ. And so you don't have to confess with your mouth or believe in your heart. You're just saved. Isn't God great? Love wins. Then you hear them say things like, we got to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. We got to redefine morality. That was then. This is now. We've got to be a little bit more tolerant with people. We've got to be a little bit more inclusive. We can't take first century moral strictures and just sort of hold as bowl as bring them over to the 21st century. It doesn't work that way. Yes, it does. God doesn't change. God doesn't lie. His truth is truth. They give license to the flesh. 
And as a consequence, they don't know when to blush. And they teach that we should live our best lives now. The largest church in North America as a pastor who emphasizes that. You need to live your best life now. Largest evangelical church in North America. See, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. And so Paul warns these people. Paul warns these people and says, don't let them be your mentor. If he was alive today, he would say, don't watch their TV show. Don't read their books. Don't follow their example. So who should be your mentor? Who should you ask to mentor you? Someone who's a little further along in the journey and who knows the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who, who, is, who is unequivocal about what the gospel is. Who understands it clearly. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That on the cross, God punished Jesus for my sin. That he vented his wrath on his son and he gave me his perfect righteousness so that I can stand before him today just as if I'd never sinned, covered over in the perfect righteousness of Christ as we talked about last week. Find somebody who knows the gospel, who loves the gospel, who talks about the gospel. Find somebody who is unprepared to compromise morality, biblical morality. Find somebody who knows when to blush who when they sin, they are ashamed. And they take it to the foot of the cross and they leave it there and they forget it and they keep on going. And find somebody whose focus is on the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, who understands that this life is like a fleeting vapor. We're here and we're gone. Like I'm 65 now. You'd never know it looking at me, but I am, right? <laughs> 65 years old, I look back on my life and it's just gone. As I said a couple of weeks ago, one of the ladies in our small group, Michelle, dear friend, 60 years old, gone. It's a vapor. It's almost intangible, this life. We try to anchor ourselves and we can't. You can't live your best life. It's impossible because this is, Kenzie said, this is a tough life. It's hard. And we're called to suffer because of what we look forward to. And that's what he goes on to talk about. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And the last point he makes is this, that we've got to keep our eyes on the prize. Look what he says. <clears throat> our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly, lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subdue or subject all things to himself so in contrast to these false teachers whose focus is on this world and getting all the gusto they can get out of this world, right? Instead of focusing on getting all the toys so that I win when I die, right? You've heard that? Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And we're looking forward to the coming of Jesus. And when he finally comes, whenever that is, Something magnificent, something breathtaking is going to happen to every single one of us who know and trust Jesus. And that is we will receive a body like his glorious body. We will be resurrected, we will be reconstituted, and, and you will be given a body that is like Christ's post-resurrection body. You will still look like you, you will still sound like you. 
If you look at your hand right now, that hand will be the same hand that will be in your post-resurrection body. Think about how Jesus, they looked at Jesus and they knew it was him. They knew it was him. He looked like him. And he was physical. And he ate with his disciples. And he laughed with his disciples. And he walked with them. And he conversed with them. And then he walked through walls and defied gravity and showed up and disappeared. And that's the body that Christ is going to give each of those who loved his appearing. That's our future, folks. Can you imagine? At the day of resurrection, when we enter the new heavens and the new earth, personally, I think it's going to be so much like this, it's going to be shocking. Yet there will be we will be rid of the effects of sin completely. And we'll walk together and we will eat together and we will laugh together and we will recognize each other and we will worship together and sin will be banished forever. Like that's the goal. That's where we're going. And so Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven. Make that your goal. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Don't worry about anything else. Everything else will be added. Make that your focus. So what does it look like? What does it look like to stand firm? Well, it's certainly not being sinless. It's certainly not being perfect. Because we never will be until that moment that the Lord gives us this new body. We see him face to face. What does it mean? It means that we've got to keep running the race, keep our eyes on the finish line, focus on the goal, keep staring intently at that upward call of God, that, that, that goal that God has given to us, to see his face and to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. So what does it mean to stand firm? It's admitting that you have a long way to go, and it's embracing gospel forgetfulness. It's confessing our sin and continuing to move forward, being sensitive to our conscience that we might live obedient, godly lives, finding and following a godly mentor, and keeping our eyes on the prize. But it all begins with confession. It all begins by coming to that place where we realize, I'm not the person that I need to be. I'm not, I'm not the kind of person that I need to be. I got a long way to go. But I'm going to forget yesterday. And I'm just going to come to the foot of the cross every single day and say, Lord, thank you for forgetting my sin. I'm going to leave it right here. And I'm going to get up off my knees and I'm going to go into this day and trust that you will fill me and use me for your glory. So, so church, stand firm thus in the Lord.